Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the first episode of the Pre-Pacers podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams, and during my core training, I spent ages commuting to and from hospital every day whilst revising for paces. I thought there must be loads of doctors revising for this exam. Why isn't there a free, open access, easy listening way to revise for the MRCP paces? So I've created just that, an easy listening revision podcast for you to use on your commute, your morning run, or whenever you choose to listen. To start things off, this first episode focuses on the absolute basics of paces. I was joined by Dr. Jenny Goff, an IMT2 based in the Sevendinary. We talked through the structure and format of every single paces station before answering some of Jen's frequently asked questions. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, comment, subscribe, share, and follow us on social media at Pre-Paces Podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for listening, and best of luck with the revision. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and you are listening to the first in a series of podcasts aiming to give you the best chance to pass the devilishly difficult MRCP Paces exam. Each week, I'll be joined by guests ranging from current junior doctors looking to sit the exam, doctors who've recently passed, and consultants who are experts in their fields, where sitting the membership is a distant, hazy memory. This episode is focused on the very basics of PACES. We will be covering the format and structure of the exam, as well as the application process, and finishing off with some frequently asked questions from our resident PACES city, Dr. Jenny Goff. Jenny, currently an IMT2 based in the Southwest, she was just getting started with her PACES revision when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. She's just getting back into the groove of revision. So Jen, whereabouts did you get up to just before things started to get a little bit busy for us? Um, If I'm completely honest, I didn't actually get very far into it, but I'm hoping to start getting things rolling again um, and go to some sessions soon and sit in the future. So the first episode obviously has to cover the absolute basics of paces. So if you are a doctor, let's say, might have an interest in general medicine, might be thinking about doing IMT training later on, 
any foundation doctors with an interest in internal medical training, any maybe F3s who haven't quite made up their mind yet, or any current IMTs like Jen looking to pass the exam. And who knows, maybe we might get some surgeons who are looking to broaden their horizons a little bit. We'll be going through, for the rest of the podcast, the structure and format, hopefully give you some advice on how best you can improve your chances of doing well in those stations. We'll also be talking about the marking criteria, the different domains under which you're marked when you sit paces. And after that, we're going to be finishing off with some frequently asked questions, which Jen has gathered from a variety of different sources. So let's jump into the action, shall we? Yep, let's do it. So Jen, we're going to start off talking about stations one and three. So these are like the examination stations or the clinical examination stations, aren't they? Yes. And these are probably the ones which are known for being more difficult to do with paces. Yes, I think it's more of the time frame that worries me the most. Yeah. And seeing enough patients so that you can actually pick out the signs properly. There's lots of rumours that if you don't if you don't get the diagnosis then that's sort of it and that's your exam over yeah exactly so timing is absolutely critical in this station so how long do the candidates actually have Jen so they have 10 minutes total with six minutes of that being the exam and then four minutes for the examiners to answer questions on various domains which include kind of summarizing the what you found and then maybe talking about the management of of what you think you should do with that patient right and each station actually has two 10 minute stations back to back don't they of course so station one is the abdominal and respiratory station and then station three is the cardiology and neurology station and usually it is in that order Mm -hmm. so the marking criteria for the examination stations covers five of the key marking domains so jen what are the key marking domains for these examination stations for abdominal resp cardiology and neurology exams yeah so for for these examination stations obviously well the first one is just physical examination which is reasonably straightforward so that's whether you can conduct a sort of fluent and um, well structured exam the next one is identifying those physical signs and then the third is using those signs that you found to conclude some differential diagnoses for that particular patient. So I think those two are probably the most critical ones really, aren't they? Because everyone can, hopefully, mm. in the time frame, they can do an examination, yeah. but it's actually the interpretation of that which is what's going to trip some people up. Because yes, actually identifying the signs and getting it right is absolutely critical. Yeah, I think my partner could probably do the exam the number of times I've practised on it. <laughs> um, but I would like to think he couldn't pick up some niche medical yeah. signs, <laughs> given that he's not actually yeah. a doctor. But. Yeah. And as you say, with the differential diagnosis, what you're trying to do is, while you're doing the exam, you should really just be on autopilot, shouldn't you really? Yeah. And the importance of, of that is that if you're on autopilot... You should be thinking and turning through the differential diagnoses in your head of the types of things which commonly come up in, for example, an uh, an abdominal examination station. Um, So the last two domains then are clinical judgment. So using what you think is your correct differential to answer questions about um, the management of that particular diagnosis. 
Um, and then the last one is hopefully what we all do naturally and quite well is maintaining patient welfare. So treating that patient well, respectfully, not being rude um, and being professional. Yeah, exactly. So as we've already said, Jen sort of touched on each of those as we've gone. Everything. So the physical examination is sort of addressed by those two first points, which is obviously the physical examination and identifying the physical signs. And then the presentation part of it is sort of addressed in the differential diagnosis and the clinical judgment domains. Whilst maintaining patient welfare just goes throughout Mm -hmm. everything. Sam, you've already passed this exam and I haven't, unfortunately. Um, for, For the kind of the physical exam and the signs, that side of things, do you have any particular tips on how to become particularly good or competent at that before you do your exam? Sure. So... All I'd say is there's no replacement for practice. Mm-hmm. Practice, practice, practice until you're able to do it with your eyes shut, blindfolded, you know, listening to heavy metal music. You're going to be able to do the exam regardless of what distractions are going on. Mm-hmm. And it's all about making the movements throughout the examination almost automatic. So you're being thorough, systemic, fluent, as it's mentioned on the mark scheme. All of those things making you look slick throughout will give the examiners that confidence that you know what you're talking about, you know what you're doing, and you're going to make a good registrar. Mm. When we move further down towards the differential diagnosis and interpreting the signs, it's almost like your brain needs to be working whilst you're examining. So having those movements happening automatically means that your brain can focus on actually interpreting what's in front of you, which is what's important because that's where... That's where the points are yeah. in the station. I think I always get quite nervous and your biggest fear is just getting flustered, getting in there and just forgetting everything, not starting systematically and then just kind of being a bit of a mess. But I guess if you've practised enough, hopefully your kind of re- repetitiveness will, will kick in and you'll just be able to do it without thinking. Exactly. Making it automatic just takes all of that brain space away for you mm. to focus on what's going on in front of you. And then going on to the presentation side of it, listening to the differential diagnosis, it's very dependent on the station in front of you Mm -hmm. because it may be that it's plainly obvious what the differential diagnoses are or what the preferred diagnosis is. In that case, great. You know, you can still say that you have a preferred diagnosis. But what I would say is that it's always good to hedge your bets and always mention a few differential diagnoses because... There are always other causes of the clinical signs you can you can find. So it's important to be open-minded. I guess if you have a plain diagnosis, it's, it's really good in one sense that you, you've nailed it, you've probably got the marks, you're going to answer the rest of the questions properly. But it's sometimes really hard if it's so obvious to think of other things it could be because, it, you know, well, it is this. Yeah. So you have to really then, I guess that comes with practice as well, like thinking a bit more broadly and kind yeah. of getting some things that you've maybe learnt beforehand that you can kind of rule off. Or something. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. Mm. And then going on to the clinical judgment domain. So again, that's largely going to be based from your presentation, from your differential diagnosis, because your ongoing management plan is going to be dependent on the diagnosis you have. So the examiners will often ask you, a variety of questions based around that diagnosis. They may say something like, if this patient presented to you in hospital, how would you investigate and manage them? Something very broad like that. And often they might expect you to go straight from your presentation of the clinical signs into 
a preferred diagnosis or a list of differential diagnoses and then straight away the if you are slick enough go straight into how you would investigate and manage this patient based on what you think the differential diagnoses are all i'd say is as well is that it can be useful to take a pause and see if the examiner jumps in if you're going down the wrong path sometimes by pausing you let them jump in and then they can sort of help pull you back from the brink if you are going a bit down the wrong path okay can i, I can i put you on the spot and yeah yeah sure um did you get asked anything particularly niche or very difficult in any of your exams? They ask you a lot of questions afterwards, but mm. they usually start off with relatively straightforward, like what are the investigations and management? Mm. What are the dif- other differential diagnoses for this presentation? You know that if they're going into the very deep minutiae of the condition you've been examining, that you're on the right lines mm-hmm. because they're not because they've asked you all the simple things to begin with. So you, you must be on the right lines if they're going down into very deep knowledge. Okay. At that point, you can sort of relax. Okay, so actually, if the questions get harder, it's probably a good thing. Unless you've got the, <laughs> unless you've got the first ones wrong. <laughs> generally speaking, if you've managed to get through the first few questions, which are generally the more straightforward questions, it shouldn't feel too bad if you get asked about more in-depth or very in-depth things further down the line. So that's the general structure of the stations one, abdominal respiratory, and station three, which is cardiology, neurology. So those are the uh, the two examination stations. And can I just ask if between the cardio neuro bit, is there a bit of a bit of breathing space? No. Okay. So, so not at all. In. So same in station one. You finish mm. the abdominal examination. You finish your presentation. The, the questions finished. The timer goes. And it's straight on to the next examination. Okay. So there's no time in between. You get the time in between the stations, which is the normal preparatory sort of time, where you're running through in your head what you're going to do. You go in, six minutes of abdominal examination, four minutes of presentation of questions, straight into the respiratory examination. Okay. <laughs> it is daunting when you first think about it but once you've done a few practice runs maybe you're lucky enough in the trust you work in they may even do a mock exam yeah. that can be really useful in getting you used to managing the uh, stress of the timings as we've already talked about so moving on we're going to talk about the two other stations these are the communication skills stations so station two is the history taking skills station And station four is the communication skills station. So Jen, do you want to talk us through the marking domains which are used in the history taking skills station? Yes, of course. So um, obviously there's no examination. So the physical signs um, and the actual examining are gone. So you get clinical skills, clinical communication skills instead um, as your first domain that's examined. So that's kind of basically taking a history so running through what the complaint is the past medical history the family history the drug history all of that thing that you would normally do everything you correctly. do on the normal exactly. medical take yeah so that should in theory be be easy hopefully <laughs> um, and then the others so the next one is managing the patient's concerns and I think you were saying earlier as well when we were speaking about this before that this is actually quite a big part of the communications stations so there's always some sort of 
know, secret concern that you have to <laughs> dig out of yeah. these patients. Tell me what it is. Um, but if you don't ask about them specifically, I'm guessing you probably don't don't give them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I guess the main part of that is that there usually is almost it's not quite a secret because they often come out with it pretty easily if you just ask them but it's just a really important part is just remember to at the end ice 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 we're bringing back another infamous acronym from medical school (laughs) ideas concerns expectations hopefully that's nothing new to to the listeners but it is very important because there is usually a key concern at the end. Sometimes it's something to do with the social history. Mm. So it might be something like returning to work. It might be something about telling the news to a family member. Just always remember that there's always sort of a key concern to address. Okay. Usually in the history station, after you've gathered the the history of sense complaint and the other parts of the history, as as you mentioned. Brilliant. And then we have... Two domains that we're familiar with. So one is the differential diagnoses. So after taking the history, what do you think it is? And list as many appropriate differentials as you can. And then the clinical judgment. So again, with, with what you think it is, what would you do? I would just say in the history taking station, it's really important because sometimes, like, you, like we said earlier, similar to the examination station, mm. it might be really obvious yeah. what it's meant to be. But you still have to think in an open-minded way that it could be any number of things. And even though you think, well, this is clearly Guillain-Barre syndrome or whatever, (laughs) it's still important to be very open-minded with other potential causes of that presentation. Mm -hmm. And as we've already mentioned, maintaining patient welfare is something which is maintained throughout every patient's station. So, Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's just not being rude to the patient. So hopefully easy marks for us there. And again, if we go back to talking about the timings for these stations, the structure is slightly different because these stations are actually 20 minutes long in total. Jen, do you want to run us through the timings for um, these communication stations in particular? Yes. So it's actually quite a lot of time. I think compared to the exam, it feels a lot less pressured. So there's 14 minutes to take the history and then actually deciding on your differentials and then explaining those to the examiner there's one minute then of of reflection time i don't know does the examiner speak to you during that time so not so not in the 14 minutes so okay the 14 minutes is um just you and the patient Mm -hmm. so you might explain if on the brief it says explain your management plan to the patients Mm -hmm. that should be incorporated into that 14 minutes okay after the 40 minutes, the buzzer goes or whistle blows or whatever signaling modality they have at your centre. It's a bit different because you get a minute of reflection mm-hmm. after that, the end of that 40 minutes. Is that a very awkward minute? Well, your mind's still <laughs> thinking about any history that you've taken and how you're going to summarise your presentation to the examiners. Okay. And it's at that point that they're going to start asking you questions in a similar way as they did in the examination station yeah and that bit would last uh five five further five minutes bringing the total to 20 minutes yeah absolutely and um, and when you did this station did you find that it was particularly time pressured or was it enough time so i think just because of the time that we usually take seeing patients when they come into hospital yeah it actually feels like you've got quite a lot of time. And because of that, there shouldn't really be an excuse 
for missing anything out of the history. And, you know, I'm as guilty as many others, I'm sure, of missing out critical points of the history just from having, you know, a brain meltdown. And what I would suggest is when you're outside preparing for the station, having a structure of an A4 piece of paper and how you're going to document the history. And often at the start of the station, it's useful to ask the actor and say, do you mind if I just take some notes? So after you've introduced yourself, explain that you're going to take a history from them, just say, I'm going to be taking some notes. Um, Is that okay with you? Obviously, they're going to be completely fine with it because it's an exam. And it'd be <laughs> cruel to leave you without that aid memoir. Um, yeah, I think I think as well, just comparing it to normal practice is. I don't know about you, but I'm quite guilty of squirrelling away on my computer for twenty minutes before looking at this patient in excruciating detail, writing down all their <laughs> medical history, what scans they've had, all their drugs off their GP record. That sometimes then, when you actually speak to the patient. You don't feel the need necessarily to ask them some of the more crucial questions, which obviously can be very useful because things might have changed. Or Exactly. So you need to break all those habits of mm. getting the drug history from <laughs> uh, from their prescription and not asking them about that. Or like you say, get it from the GP records. Important to just make sure you're taking the thorough history. We're talking uh, the precision of a final year medical student plus... <laughs> Um, systems review <laughs> exactly systems review you can't forget the systems not review <laughs> not got just me moving on to the communication skills station it's quite similar in a number of different ways but um, the one important thing is that one of the marking criteria actually isn't present in the communication skills which is present in the history taking skills which is the differential diagnosis that would make sense yeah because your focus in a communication station isn't to make a diagnosis. Mm. Often you're addressing a difficult situation, possibly breaking some bad news, explaining a new diagnosis, or managing a difficult conversation with, with a patient for any other reason. As Jen's already outlined, the marking criteria for the history taking is exactly the same. Clinical communication skills, managing patient concerns, clinical judgment maintaining patient welfare so just those four with the differential diagnoses taken out we can talk about this in future podcasts and we'll focus on exact um, scenarios related to communication but essentially it's about gathering the relevant information in a clear structured comprehensive fluent and professional way and in terms of managing the concerns it's a lot more wide-ranging often in the history station it'll just be one aspect of taking the history but in the communication they may have a number of different concerns and you have to address each of them individually okay Fine. and it, again just to say with the timings it's the same structure with the timings so 14 minutes to speak to the patient and address their concerns and then the bell goes and you stop and then one minute to reflect and then five minutes of questions yeah and we're going to be covering this in, in podcasts to come, but it's really important to just think about the common types of themes which come up in these sorts of stations. And like we've already said, it's often to do with explaining a new condition or diagnosis, breaking bad news, possibly about end-of-life care. Sometimes it's to do with clinical errors. For example, the administration of a wrong drug and the management of any ethical considerations 
that are significant within a specific case. But all of those are very scenario dependent, aren't they? Yes. And do you have, I always find they kind of seem to be either sort of angry patient themed or upset patient themed. Um, do you have a, do you have one that you particularly prefer (laughs) i mean hopefully neither but um when we talk about these stations uh in future episodes i think the key thing really is just to remain as calm as possible and maintaining that professional manner even in the face of an actor or a patient who may end up being either distressed they might even uh get out some hollywood tears for you but it's important just to remain calm even if you know, they end up standing up and you know arguing with you or whatever. Remaining calm and professional during the exam is of utmost importance because you're trying to convince the examiners that you're going to make a safe medical reg who knows how to deal with those sorts of situations appropriately. And then going down, just looking at the mark scheme again, the clinical judgment is all going to be in the communication station about selecting and negotiating an appropriate management plan. Again, that's something that's very scenario dependent really maybe a little bit trickier because it's not a clinical management plan yeah as as such yeah and i think another thing which is significant in this station in particular is that they're not looking for in-depth medical knowledge it's more to do with how you manage that particular station or sorry how you manage that particular scenario without having a deep medical knowledge of whatever they're talking about Mm -hmm. so it may be a new diagnosis of a rare condition, even if you may only have heard of that condition in passing, maybe you don't know the exact details about it, they should provide you with the implications of that diagnosis so that you're able to frame that conversation in the most appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've just come to the end of the clinical communication station there. After the break, Jen, what are we going to be talking about? We are going to try and conquer Station 5, which is notoriously uh, tricky. And then after that, Jen, you've got a few sort of frequently asked questions from a variety of sources that you thought maybe the listeners might want the answers to. Yes. Brilliant. Great. So take a couple of minutes, grab a cup of tea, and we'll see you after the break. back on the pre-paces podcast so far we have discussed stations one two three and four all of the clinical examination stations the history station and the clinical communication skills station jenny what are we going on to next so sam we're going to talk about station five which is probably the most infamous station of them all and the one that people have the most difficulty with as well um, and that's for probably two reasons one is it's quite time pressured and two that you have to do everything all at once which I find quite daunting yeah <laughs> it's it's certainly time pressured more so than the examination stations I would say for sure because in this station it's the same length as the examination stations but you're having to do that much more We've been talking a little bit about the marking schemes and the criteria 
for the other stations and you've mentioned obviously this one is all seven of those domains um, being assessed in this particular station so that's your, your clinical communication skills your physical examination your clinical judgment managing the patient's concerns and then also identifying the clinical signs making a differential and then you've also got in the background that constant managing patients welfare which has been throughout the the whole of the exam yeah absolutely so and one thing we just wanted to recap as we've talked about throughout this episode of the podcast all of those marking criteria have a score related to each domain so you can either get a satisfactory which is worth two points Mm -hmm. a borderline which is worth one point and an unsatisfactory which is worth zero points there's no excellent unfortunately (laughs) there's no excellent because we obviously both of us would clearly get (laughs) but um sadly there's no excellent but what it means in terms of its contribution to your overall mark for the exam is huge bit of tricky sort of maths coming up here so just bear with us on this station five has seven marking domains with two marks per domain that means you can get 14 marks per examiner Mm -hmm. you've then got two marks sorry (laughs) you've then got two examiners yeah which means you can have a maximum of 28 per brief clinical consultation of station five and there are two of those which makes for an absolutely whopping 56 potential marks out of a total of 172 so jen that means this station is nearly a third of your total marks for the entire exam which is terrifying but i'm very proud of you for getting through that (laughs) section (laughs) through that traumatic time So I hope that just demonstrates to the listeners just how important Station 5 is and how maybe this should be the station that you practice the most. There are plenty of resources on the MRCP website, so do have a look at those resources. Yes, so timings-wise in this particular station, we've got a five-minute prep period before, which is very important considering the pressure you're going to be under when you get in to kind of structure what you're going to ask and how you're going to how you're going to conduct the examination. Yeah. You do get a brief for the presenting complaint of the patient. So it's usually reasonably brief and it'll be something which hopefully will give it away a little bit. Mm. I guess if it's a headache, you're probably not going to end up listening to their chest. Exactly. It should inform your examination what parts of history you're going to be taking. So do read the brief and do just take a few pertinent notes down. But do remember that there are two. So in that five minutes, you need to split that equally. So have two and a half minutes for the first brief clinical consultation and then spend the second two and a half minutes on the second one. For those of you who are going to take a watch in with you, that can be useful to help you organise your time even in that preparation period before you even enter the station. And once you're in there, uh, it's split into two 10-minute sections. You get eight minutes, so only eight minutes to take a focused history, examine the patient, and then explain to that patient your differentials and your plan. Wait, Jen, you're telling me... (laughs) I've got six minutes to examine a patient in stations one and three, but in this one, I've got to do a history examination and explain the plans in eight minutes. Yeah. Have you ever done that ever in eight minutes in your 
Not in the real world. <laughs> not in my clinical practice, but have I in the exam? Absolutely. Oh, goodness. Okay. And then after the eight minutes, what's after that? So then there's two minutes of rapid fire questions from the examiner with the differentials that you've come up with. Yeah. So really, this acts sort of similarly to the presentations in stations one and three, in that if you like, you can just jump straight into it and say, this is my preferred diagnosis for this patient, or this is Mrs. X. She's presented with a history of X, Y, and Z. My preferred diagnosis would be this. But often it can be useful for the examiners to just guide you with that. But more than likely, they'll ask you similar sorts of questions. And then obviously there is another one after that one. So yeah. there's two within the, the 20 minute book. Two for the price of one. Mm. And then the important thing about this station, which is a bit different to the others, we've already talked about the mark scheme and that you're being assessed in every domain. The importance of time, you can't understate it. They actually encourage you to try and continue taking the history whilst performing some parts of the examination. And getting comfortable with that, demonstrating how you can be slick in taking history whilst also, let's say, checking a person's pulse. It'll be difficult to carry on taking history if you're, you know, listening to their chest or pressing on their abdomen. But it's important to try and demonstrate you can still be slick, still do some parts of the examination. For example, checking for lymph nodes or... Looking at their hands. Or looking at their hands. And it's completely fine to do that whilst you're taking some other elements of the history and all that will just save you some time so it is worth practicing taking history whilst performing some parts of the examination yes and we we were speaking earlier before recording as well that it it sort of mimics a little bit kind of like how a consultant maybe might do a post-take ward round where everything's a bit more focused and integrated all together yeah so the real important part of this is that If you have a helpful actor, they can actually answer the questions more quickly and that just helps your time management for the whole station, really. This is by far the station which I think most candidates find most daunting, Jen. So I would say don't be too daunted and it's just a case of getting used to that time pressure. So because this station's quite different to what we've seen before, what kind of things um, are usual to come up with? So I think in the past, this station was more like a sort of spot diagnosis type station. So you might get a brief saying, for example, this person has a headache and visual disturbance and you'd walk in and someone clearly would have acromegaly. With with a spade in the corner. With a spade in the corner to put up next to their hand (laughs) to demonstrate they've got spade shaped hands. They've changed that a little bit, at least in my experience, in that more often now it's a patient with a known diagnosis. For example, if we take acromegaly, someone with a known diagnosis of acromegaly who for some reason has now suffered a complication of that condition or a known association of that condition. So although it might be this person has come with headaches, it may be that that person now has sleep apnea related to their acromegaly. So although they may have the characteristic appearance which suited itself in the past to those spot diagnoses. Now it's something which is obvious when you enter the room and it's an association of that condition. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of different things which can frequently come up. It can also be a new diagnosis as well, or they might treat it like 
someone's been having hand pain and it's a patient who clearly has a background of rheumatoid arthritis but for the purposes of the exam is treating it like a new presentation and in the same way it's important to be as thorough as you can in the time that you have I guess this is a bit of a load of questions that pens so much but how much of the physical examination you expected to do if someone if it was somebody with painful hands would you get away with just examining their hands and still pass the station or would you be expected to listen to their chest and listen to their hearts etc so i think the more that you can do to demonstrate your understanding of that condition i think it's always going to help so obviously the the key part of the examination in that particular scenario is looking at the hands but if you do have time at the end to for example listen to the chest take their pulse or listen to their heart sounds for example those extra bits as you know are associations of that condition Mm -hmm. that is signposting to the examiners that you've got an understanding of the things that are associated with that condition so i would definitely suggest trying to be multi-systemic if it is something like rheumatoid arthritis And numerous other conditions come up, things such as systemic sclerosis, ankylosing spondylitis, Cushing syndrome, acromegaly, these sorts of multi-systemic conditions where there is potential to examine other systems, not just isolated to one system. And just because you've already been examined on abdo, resp, neurocardio, can you assume that those types of conditions won't come up in station five? No, not at all. Examination of those stations can definitely come up again. Mm -hmm. Without wishing to spoil too much, I think one of the sample scenarios on the website is a GI bleed. Okay. So certainly you're going to have to palpate someone's abdomen, although it's going to be in a less thorough fashion than you would have done in your station one. Mm -hmm. It's still important to do if someone's coming in with abdominal pain and vomiting. So it's important, even though it's station five, to still be as thorough as you can with your examinations. And is it always patients that come in and to be examined or could you have an actor, for example? In this? Absolutely. So you, station five, you could easily just have someone who doesn't have any signs at all okay. and is there just as an actor, can give a fine history of the condition which they want to describe and then no physical signs might be required. It might just be something, for example, something like a GI bleed where there aren't really any physical signs apart from the symptoms which they've already described to you so definitely you can just have an actor who's come in to give a history with a completely normal examination so you can still go through the motions of doing the examination and you can almost pick up free marks there because even though you're being assessed on identifying physical signs there might not be anything there so you can pick up free marks if there are no physical signs to report would the examiner ever say, I remember doing OSCEs at medical school and sometimes they chirp in and say things like, you can feel a blah, 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 blah when you're you know, examining yeah, an actor yeah. to kind of make it seem more real. Do they ever do that? Or if it's normal, it's normal. So not in my experience. They, okay. they often won't interrupt you during the flow of the uh, <laughs> exam. So, yeah. so I think they will more likely ask you about any examination findings in the two minutes, which they'll talk to you about right, once okay. the end of the eight minutes Uh, is finished okay so we've seen to cover station five hopefully in a bit of detail there so just to recap it's two brief clinical consultations each 10 minutes long with eight minutes for a focused history examination and then explaining the next steps the investigations and management plan 
followed by two minutes of presentation and questions from the examiners. As we said earlier, really important to remember, this station alone nearly makes up a third of the marks. As with everything in paces, practice, 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 but station five, it is just so critically important, especially when you've got such time pressure. Jen, you mentioned you were going to sit paces before the COVID pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And I understand you've gone around some of your colleagues, maybe some people who haven't sat paces or maybe people who've sat it, who've thought, what sort of questions, if I was someone who was just going to sit paces or interested in internal medical training, what sort of questions about the exam would I want answered? So I thought we'd just go through a few of your sort of frequently asked questions and see if uh, any of them are any different to the ones that are on the website. Yes, thank you, Sam. So I guess kind of firstly, I wanted to focus maybe more on the logistics of actually applying. So the first one was sort of to talk about how many sittings there actually are, um, how you would actually apply, and um, the timings maybe around that. So in terms of actually applying, you do that in the same way that you did if you sat your MRCP part one and part two, and that's through your MRCP online account. And through that, you submit obviously your personal details. And then there is also some white space to make requests. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you can't do it for a certain time that you're on holiday or something like that, you can request that they don't book you during that time, but you request for a specific time slot. So there are only three sittings a year and finally enough, they're called diets. <laughs> so we're not talking about Atkins, Slimming World or the Paleo. We're talking about diets in paces. So each sitting of an exam is called a diet and there are three per year. And it's really important to check the MRCP website because they will have the dates where you apply for that diet of exam. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's really important to check those because they're not the same every year. They do change. Really important to just check on the website when the dates are for the exam you want to sit at each time in the year. The only thing I'd also just add to that is that I know that the actual time that you can apply to them is quite short and is usually a few months before the actual exam. So what you don't want is think, oh, I'm going to do my exam in March and then realise actually it's December <laughs> and the date's closed yeah. and you've missed the boat. So. Yeah, so yeah. Jen's absolutely right. So just make sure that when you are thinking of booking onto Paces, just make sure you've got the dates absolutely right. And also have a look when the first date is that you could potentially sit the exam because you never know, you might get that first date, that first sitting. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you can be a bit strategic, I guess, as well about when you want to sit it. So some people choose to sit it in a particular placement that's maybe a bit more calm so that you can leave the ward more to go and see uh, patients on the wards or um, maybe one that doesn't have as many on calls or something like that so that you know it's a bit easier for you yeah definitely so if you, if you know you've got you know a week of nights and a week of long shifts 12 hour days before your exam it is fine to contact the mrcp the royal college even after you've got your dates 
for example, if you've got your date but you don't have your rotor and then your rotor around that time is horrible, you can ask them to reschedule and often they're quite accommodating in my experience in adjusting your dates of your exam. Mm -hmm. And then, Jen, another question which I think comes up quite frequently to do with paces is, can you choose where you go? Yes, that's a, a good question. And again, so you do have that white box that you spoke about where you can request time slots. You can also request where to, maybe the area where you'd like to stay or not to go really far away, for example, if you have a good reason for it, like small children or something like that. Um, but again, they can't, the, the website clearly stresses that they cannot guarantee where you go. And the other caveat to that is they can't send you somewhere where you've worked before or if you've been on a course somewhere because you might know the patients and might be at an unfair advantage. Yeah, and I think there's a sl- uh, there's a part of the application where you're meant to declare that. So you're meant to declare, for example, where you did your foundation jobs Yeah. so that you don't go back to your foundation hospital, suddenly see a patient that you treated a couple of years ago and suddenly you know the diagnosis because mm-hmm. they've now volunteered to help out with paces. So, mm-hmm. you know, that... That's important as well. Brilliant. So the other thing, obviously, kind of with the applications is how much is this going to cost us, <laughs> I guess? No medical exams are cheap. If you've already sat part one and part two, you know that sitting medical exams isn't cheap. So the cost for paces is £657. It's very specific. It is very specific, isn't it? I'd love to know how they came up with that number. There are ways that you can recoup some of that money. Unfortunately, it's not covered in, as far as I know, it's not covered in any study budgets provided by the deanery. So you're never seeing that £657 again, unfortunately. You're saying goodbye to that. But, and this is dependent on your deanery, and it's definitely worth checking with your deanery or, for example, the college tutor at the trust that you're training. You may be able to get your travelling expenses to the exam paid for. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to recoup some of the costs involved with sitting paces it's always really important just to check can you get those traveling expenses back so always worth checking if you're in a training job with the deanery um, that you're enrolled with or with the college tutor at the trust where you're working yeah it's if you get sent somewhere very far away and you're on call the days before you might even want to go and stay up by where you're examined yeah absolutely as far as i know i don't believe you can claim back hotel costs but again Mm. that might be something i might be completely wrong about that and that might be something that you can check locally where you might be able to claim back some hotel costs but i think that is probably dependent on your deanery so definitely check and then the other way that you can recoup a bit of money is the fact that because this is considered mandatory for continuing with your training you can claim back tax on the fees that you pay to sit these exams Mm. The MRCP website on the Frequently Asked Questions does have a good detail on the ways that you can do that. So do check the MRCP website for that as well. But you can claim back the tax on the exams you've sat. And that also includes part one and part two. So although it might be a bit of a wait, and I've done it myself, it's a couple of months, I think. But you do get a check in the post later on from the tax man with a bit of a rebate from the tax that you paid on those exams. So Jen, obviously the... COVID pandemic disrupted paces massively. Mm -hmm. Exams were stopped for a period of time. It was at quite a critical time because 
paces that's actually going to change format completely. We wouldn't have even been talking about the format and structure of the exam that we've spoken about so far. No, exactly. And it was uh, called Paces 2020. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, not to be. Um, but yes, there was going to be a change to the format, um, but that's now actually been delayed until 2022. So we've got this year and obviously, so the end of this year and the next three diets of 2021 um, before the format changes. But um, we're hopefully going to be doing a podcast, maybe not. Yeah, we'll get you back, Jane. We'll do it. <laughs> I'll get you back and we can talk Being about... Being very presumptuous. Yeah, yeah. yeah we can, no, we'll book you in again. We'll book you in again to cover the new structure and format of Paces 2022. Right, you have it here in, you know, in person. Yeah, I can't so, go back on it now. No, you're very offended if it's someone else. No. <laughs> but yeah, so there is a new format. It's coming. It, it actually looks better, which is a bit... Um, I mean, they're obviously trying to change it to make it a better... Uh, format and one that mimics clinical practice better so that we can assess doctors in a more accurate way um so it's probably going to be a good thing so it's a bit of a shame that it's been delayed but never mind yeah and we'll cover that in detail on the pre-paces podcast when that happens brilliant um so just going back to you send sam um obviously lots of people talk about the resources available for studying for paces um lots of people want to give away their old resources their old books what would you recommend what was helpful for you I mean for me as well as obviously practicing with my colleagues helpful registrars helpful consultants particularly for the examination stations in terms of particular resources there are so many out there mm. I can't name specific ones in particular just because there is just so much out there but all I would say is to get resources which are closest to what you'll get on the day of your exam, the closest you'll get is the sample scenarios which are on the MRCP website. Mm -hmm. They've got a really good number of history, communication and station fives there. So if you want something which is the closest description and with sample mark schemes, the things they would expect you to give as answers, I would suggest going to the MRCP website, burn your way through those and then... Once you finish those, with a group of colleagues who are maybe sitting in the exam as well, write some for each other mm -hmm. using that template maybe as a pro forma. Okay, brilliant. That's good to know. And then, I guess, come, going on from that, once we're actually sat our exam, what is the pass mark? It's probably where the first question people would ask. And when you when you sat it how long does it take for your results to get back in terms of the pass mark it i think it changes every year mm -hmm. the important thing to note is that there's a minimum pass mark which you have to reach in each station but also there's a minimum pass mark for each marking domain okay even though you might pass every station if you consistently fall down in one of the marking domains for example, clinical judgment mm -hmm. or physical examination, you may not pass, even though technically you've passed every individual station, if you consistently fall down in one of those categories, you may not pass. Okay. And then, Jen, your second question was about when do you find out if you've passed? Mm -hmm. So on the uh, MRCP website, it says 
10 working days. So you're looking at effectively two weeks of agonising hell before <laughs> you find out whether or not you've uh, whether or not you've passed. And that will be on your MRCP online account. So on the account which you applied to sit the exam, mm. it'll be on there under the exam diet which you've just sat. And Jen, there's another important thing which I think you're going to ask about, which is feedback related to the exam. Yes. Say you get your results and unfortunately it doesn't go your way, you don't pass and you want to know what you did wrong, you can actually request to have some feedback from the college and there is an email that you can look up on the MRCP website and you can email them and ask for your feedback. I think you were saying as well before that the quality of some of your feedback can be a bit variable. Yeah, so I think it it really depends on your performance in any given station, but Mm. you're sort of relying on the examiners in that station to have made some decent notes on your performance. They do have to write something down if they're going to give you an unsatisfactory or a borderline. If you've passed, they don't have to write anything. If you've got satisfactory in every domain they don't need to write anything so there should be some notes on there if you've got borderline or unsatisfactory in any of the domains that's good because it can obviously help you improve in future and then one other thing which i think you mentioned jen was sometimes you might not find out if you've passed your exam Mm -hmm. before the deadline for applying for the next diet. Yes. So you can be stuck in this limbo where you've just sat the exam, you don't know if you've passed, and suddenly if you don't pass and you don't apply, you're then stuck for another few months. Yes, especially if you're late in your training and you need to pass before you go on to your reg year. Absolutely. It's much more time pressured. So the important thing to remember in that situation is that you can apply to the next diet of paces without knowing your results and then in that case if you have passed they'll then refund the fee back to you so you don't have to worry about losing that money if you then find out that you passed later on and I believe they do that automatically yes I think that's right it's the only time they give you your money back (laughs) you don't you don't see that 657 quid ever again (laughs) unless you pass anyway Jen so I think that's sort of covered a lot of the things that we were going to talk about yeah i think so i've I've actually really enjoyed it yeah so (laughs) if we just recap quickly the stuff that we've Mm -hmm. uh spoken about so far we talked through the structure and format of all the stations involved in the mrcp paces exam Mm -hmm. including the examination stations that stations one and three the history taking communications which is two and four we discussed station five and just how significant getting a good mark in Station 5 is to your overall mark. And how terrifying it is. <laughs> yeah. And then we've also answered some of your questions that you've gathered from, well, you and some other some colleagues. Hopefully setting people up, giving them a bit of a taste of what pace is like, ready to jump in, get some revision going, and hopefully succeed in the exam. Brilliant. So Jen, only leave us to say... Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And guys, obviously we're trying to improve every day as we go along. So if you've got any feedback for us on the Pre-Paces Podcast, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pre-Paces Podcast. And on email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. So thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions, please do get in touch. 
and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast. So there we are guys, thank you to those of you who've made it this far. Suffice to say that this podcast was recorded before the new adjustments were introduced to the structure and format due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But never fear, next episode we're joined by an IMT2 who has recently passed the exam during the time of COVID and we will be running through all the changes to the format due to the pandemic and giving you a top 10 tips for your paces revision. After that we're going to start covering the core topics that commonly come up in the exam so if you want a specific topic covered then please get in touch on twitter and instagram it's at pre podcast don't forget to like comment and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we hope to see you next time on the pre paces podcast